Please look with me at Luke chapter 9. We are uh, continuing in a series that we started last, last fall, walking with Peter, as it were, through passages that show us this brother of ours as he uh, comes to terms with the reality and even the beauty of Jesus. So read with me at verse 28 of Luke chapter 9. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were walking, were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray together. Lord uh, Jesus, uh, come again, we ask, by your Spirit and be with us. Uh, You are here in the pages of your word, but we need your Spirit if we are to see you. And we need your spirit, not only to see you, but we need your spirit that we might delight in you. And so come and help us to delight in you, Lord Jesus, for you are our only true and eternal joy. We ask in your name, amen. Please be seated. We're walking our way through these passages showing us Peter and how Peter changes. Um, and, and that's what the Christian life really is about. That's what the gospel is about. It's what Christianity is about. It's about change. It's about metamorphosis. It's about transformation. It's about becoming new It's about being restored. All kinds of synonyms that capture aspects of the change that we desperately need and deep, deep, deep in our souls we really and truly want. I'm in my first month in my annual trek. Actually, actually I'm in my third month of my annual trek through the Scriptures. It always takes me more than a year, which is why 
I'm in my third month in my annual trek because I didn't finish my previous trek until the end of October of last year. So November, December, January. I hope that's an encouragement to you. And I'm in Exodus and I'm in 2 Corinthians 4. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to read verses that are among my favorite verses in the whole of the scripture. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Christianity is about change. It's about people being changed. It's about being renewed and made whole. And as we we follow Peter, we're seeing Peter change. We're seeing his renovation, his transformation, his renewal. And at the center of this, the center of the change that is taking place in Peter's life is this growing apprehension of the person of Jesus. That that is just so critically important. If you want techniques, go find techniques. If you want methods, go find methods. Go employ them, go use them. But they are secondary, folks. I said last week, I hope I didn't offend anybody. I probably did. But let me tell you, therapists and medicines and gimmicks and tricks and those kinds of things, they have their place, but they are secondary. What is at the center of transformation is a growing apprehension of the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we've seen, and it's what we'll continue to see as we walk with Peter. Jesus gets bigger and bigger and bigger in his field of vision. And here we come to another of those passages, which is really a watershed moment in the life of Peter. And let's just acknowledge, let's just acknowledge that Peter's growth Maybe a bad illustration. Peter's growth is like the stock market. Friday was not a good day. And Peter has his bad days. Matthew 14, you remember, Peter gets out of the boat. That's a good moment. That's the Dow Jones at the top. And then he takes his eyes off Jesus and what happens? Right? There's a 300-point loss and more. Matthew 16, Peter has a good day when he acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. It's a colossal high-water mark followed by a colossal low-water mark when he tries to impede and restrict and prohibit Jesus from moving in the direction of the cross. And Jesus addresses Peter as a demon. Get behind me, evil one, Satan, adversary, opponent. That's a low water mark. Now we ought to be, I think, encouraged, actually, by the fits and starts, the ups and downs in Peter's life, because that 
is us, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that us? Fits and starts, up and down. Peter may fail Jesus, but Jesus will never fail Peter. And that's why, among other reasons, that's why Peter's vision is increasingly filled with the beauty and glory of Jesus. Because Jesus never fails Peter. So here in this passage, in this defining moment, this watershed moment, let me make three observations. Most of the time given to one. Just a glancing blow at the last two. Three observations. First, what Peter got right. What Peter got right. Second, what Peter missed. And third, what Peter and you and I must continue to learn. What did Peter get right? Well, this is what he got right. It is a good thing. It is a good thing to be in the presence of, in the midst of, the glory of God. It is a good thing. Peter said, Master, it is good for us to be here. It is good for us to be here. This is where I belong. This is where I want to stay. This is a good thing. When our oldest daughter was in her first semester of college, came home for the first time. I don't know if it was day one or day two, and maybe I've shared this with you. I don't know. I shared it, interestingly, with the pastors and wives in Tanzania. And because parents and kids in Tanzania don't have the kind of literal, physical connection to one another that we see exhibited here in the United States, right? Unusual kinds of physical attachments like the kind of thing I'm about to share with you. All the heads were turning and people were guffawing and laughing and carrying on. I thought I'd really said something silly and stupid. But when Katie came home that first time, Either the first or the second evening, Barb and I were in bed reading, and Katie came into our room, and without hesitation, she crawled, 18-year-old, she crawled into bed with us, between us, and just nestled down into the familiarity, the safety, the security of home. Home. It's good to be here. It's good to be in the presence of glory and beauty. This is like Sam Gamgee after the long, long, arduous travails of the journey to Mount Doom. This is like Sam coming back to the Shire. To the peace and the pleasantness and the beauty. Master, it's good to be here. Peter... Peter had to connect some dots. And I don't know quite how he connected the dots, but just reading and reflecting upon this passage, meditating upon this passage, 
reading the people who are smarter than I am, who've gained insights from language and, and from other people, somehow it seems pretty clear that Peter connected some dots. Dot number one, here's Jesus, transfigured before him. Matthew and Mark use the word metamorphosis. Luke doesn't. But he's describing the same thing. And what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Mount of Transformation, the Mount of Metamorphosis, is that somehow the real and true humanity of Jesus, the humanity that is affirmed by the incarnation, the season we've just come through, his birth, from the womb of a real woman. His growth to the age of 12 where he's in the temple and he's befuddling the professors. They they can't understand how this 12-year-old young man can know the scriptures so deeply and be connecting the realities of the scriptures so clearly and so well. Real and true humanity. Leaving the temple in submission to his parents. Going back home with Joseph and Mary to continue to live out the days of his earthly existence. That humanity is somehow, in some way, peeled back. And the divine nature of Jesus breaks through and is made manifest. And it is radiant. And it is brilliant. Barb and I were sitting on a beach yesterday. It's a thing we like to do when the weather's good. Late in the afternoon. Look at the water, look at the sky, marvel at the beauty of the whole thing. And Barb asked a question, and I, frankly, I can't remember what the question was exactly right now. But the answer to the question was, well, this is the thing that's unique about Christianity. Look, we say this over and over again in one way or another. This is the thing that is unique about Christianity. You will not find an incarnation in the religions of the world. You will find God distant and remote. You will find multiple gods distant and remote. And when they show up, they show up with swords and sabers and a vengeance. You will not find in the religions of the world a God who draws near to us. That is the incarnation. That is at the core of Christianity. And here on this Mount of Transfiguration, what happens? That humanity is peeled away and the splendor of the glory of the second person of the Trinity shines forth. Folks, there are simply no illustrations adequate to picture, depict, describe what happened on that mountain. There's language in the text that suggests what other passages in the Bible suggest happen to people when they're exposed to this glory. The word fear is found in the text. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, when the glory of God is revealed, people, as John did, Revelation chapter 1, fall as dead. Habakkuk becomes nauseated. Daniel can't sleep. Isaiah is crushed. Folks say, "Mm, boy, wouldn't you love for Jesus in all of his glory to show up? No. No. Keep it veiled. 
It's too terrifying. It's too splendiferous. Not to trivialize it at all, we did see saving Mr. Banks about three weeks ago. The glory of Jesus is simply supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> and that is not to trivialize it. It is simply to say that there is no word big enough to capture the wonder and beauty of it. Transformed. And then, and then there are Moses and Elijah. And this, folks, this is something I quite tell you I had not seen before this past week. That's why I have to say, please keep reading the scriptures. Keep plowing through day by day and week by week because things will explode out of the text and they will capture your imagination. They will stun you and they will take you to places you've not been before. Moses and Elijah. We know, we kind of know what the story is about Moses and Elijah and why it is that they are there. They are there because Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets, the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus. They are there to confirm that he is the fulfillment of all of it. But here's the thing that I never saw before. They too are clothed in glory. Peter sees them clothed in glory. Sorry, I've got to get back to Luke. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Ha! And Peter is there to witness this, and he sees the humanity of Jesus peeled away, and he sees the divine glory exposed and revealed, and then he sees Elijah and Moses, these two who represent everything that is the Old Testament. He sees them bathed in, gathered up into, clothed in the refulgent splendor of Jesus. They are clothed in glory. You know, Peter has this very unusual phrase in his second letter. The women on Thursday have already looked at it. They're going to come back to it this week. There's this very unusual phrase in verse 3 of his second letter. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. He has called us to his own glory and excellence. He has called us to be gathered up into the glory that Moses and Elijah were gathered up into as Moses and Elijah represent what it is that is held out for all who look to Jesus and entrust themselves to Jesus to be clothed in that glory. But there's more by which he has granted us very great and precious promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Wow! 
that you might become partakers of the divine nature. Peter is the, as nearly as I can tell, Peter is the only author in the New Testament who uses that kind of language. James was there. John was there. John uses language of glory, to be sure. Read 1 John chapter 3, the first few verses. When he comes, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. But Peter is the only one, as nearly as I can tell, who uses this incredibly striking language, partakers of the divine glory. Why do you suppose that particular phrase lodged itself so deeply in the consciousness of Peter so that as he comes to the end of his life and contemplates his own exodus, He would use that sort of language. I will tell you why I think he uses it. Because he saw Moses and Elijah gathered up into that glory, being partakers in and of the very glory of Jesus. That is what it is to be conformed to his image. And Peter sees it. And he's making some connections. And this is the thing, folks. This is the thing that was lost, right? This glory. This is what was lost at the fall. This is the effect and the result of sin and rebellion, of disobedience. At the creation, the man and the woman are clothed in glory. They are image bearers. They are designed, created to be clothed, not just with personality, not just with rational capabilities, not just with the ability to speak, not just with volitional capabilities and emotional capabilities. All of these things that are certainly parts of what it is to be in the image of a God who thinks and who speaks and who wills and who delights in things. But this greater thing, the thing that distinguishes and differentiates the man and the woman from everything else in the, in the creation is the clothing of the glory of God. Not intrinsic to them. They're not in and of themselves glorious. It is God alone who is glorious. But it is God who clothed the man and the woman with glory. And it is that that was lost because of sin in the fall, and they became naked. Look, they were naked before the fall, and they were naked after the fall, but they were clothed differently, weren't they? They were clothed with glory, and they became clothed with guilt and shame. And nakedness is not a physical condition. It is a deep and profoundly spiritual condition. They became naked, ashamed. That's why they hide. That's why we continue to hide. It was glory that was lost. And it's a beautiful thing. Ed Welch in one of his books points this out. It's a beautiful thing as you make your way through the scriptures that God begins to re-clothe those who are guilty and shame-filled. And it is done first at the end of chapter 3 when an animal is slain and the skins of that animal cover the nakedness of the man and the woman. And it continues through the Old Testament and you get to Exodus 28 and this description 
of the garments of the high priest. And as those garments are being made two times at the beginning and at the end, God says to Moses, make these garments for glory and for beauty. And what is God saying? Look, we know Aaron, don't we? We know Aaron. But what God is saying is that he will have a greater high priest who will himself be clothed with glory and beauty and God will have for himself a kingdom of priests who will share in the glory and beauty of their high priest. That's that's salvation. That's redemption. That's renovation. That's the reversal for you personally and individually of the awful effects of sin in the fall. You might be so renovated, so reconstituted, so as to be clothed in the very glory of Jesus, your high priest. Paul writes, Romans 8, verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of being compared with the glory to be revealed in us. Yeah, that's the end. That's the outcome. Glory, beauty, dazzling, spectacular glory, partakers of the divine nature. It's the reason C.S. Lewis wrote that if you were to see a glorified saint today, you would be disposed to fall down and worship because you wouldn't recognize so splendiferous, so supercalifragilisticexpialidocious is the glory with which you will be clothed. Peter, I am convinced, sees something of that. And so he says, Master, this is the third thing. It's good for us to be here. Let's let's put up some booths. Let's put up some tents. Let's put up some tabernacles. Tents, tabernacles, booths. Big deal language. For you, it's camping. For Peter, it's a multiplicity of things, beginning with the idea as he sees Moses and Elijah wrapped up in the glory of the glorious Jesus. As he sees them wrapped up in this glory, he cannot help but think of a tabernacle, a tent, the dwelling place of the God of glory. Let's build a tabernacle. Let's build a tent. Let's build one for you. Let's build one for Moses. Let's build one for Elijah, that the glory may stay here and not depart. Ikabod. The glory has departed. No, let's build a tent so that the glory can stay here. And then there's There's this other sense, it seems to me, in which it's inevitable that Peter would have thought, he would have thought of the sequence 
of festivals in the life of Israel, Passover to weeks to tabernacles, booths, the last of the festivals, the last of the three festivals at which every male in Israel was required to be in attendance. The last ingathering, the final harvest, consummation, completeness. This is it. It's come. It's here. And Peter doesn't want to leave. He wants to stay in the presence of that glory. Now here's the point, folks. Here's the point. Here's the thing I would ask you to be mindful of as you think of Peter's life and as we are seeing Peter change. The point is this. When real, deep, and lasting change begins to happen in the life of a Christian, when real, deep, and lasting change begins to happen, Jesus becomes more than a savior. Jesus becomes more than Messiah. He becomes more than prophet, priest, and king. He becomes more than truth. He becomes beautiful. He becomes desirable. He becomes lovely to me. He isn't just truth. Truth is not enough. I must have the person. I must have the person. And that is what Peter wants. That's why he wants to stay. He must be near him. He must be with him. He must be awash in the glory of who he is. And when you and your Christian life have been given moments like that, what is the thing that you want more than any other thing? You want for those moments never to end. And that is what Peter wants. He wants it never to end, never to leave. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. When you are given the privilege of seeing just a glimpse of the beauty and loveliness and glory of God. You want to stay there. When Moses was on the mountain, what did he want? Lord, let me see your glory. There's a great passage in Exodus 33. This is a theme that runs through the scriptures. There's a great passage in Exodus 33. When Moses would go out to the tent to meet face to face with God, he took his young assistant Joshua with him. And the text says that when Moses would turn back to go to the camp, Joshua would stay in the tent. Why? Because he didn't want to leave the glory. He can't. Get enough. Psalm 27, verses 1 and 2, a psalm of David. One thing I have asked of the Lord, this 
will I seek after? Okay, pause button. I did this Friday morning at the refuge. I'm going to do it here. Pause button. What is the stock answer to the question? If you could have one wish and be assured that it would be granted, what would you have? What's the stock answer? Give me a thousand more wishes. And then as you get to the bottom of the list, right, you get way deep down into the hundreds and into the 900s. You keep track and you know you're getting close and you say, i, I got to use one of these wishes to get a thousand more wishes. And why is it that you need more than one wish? Because the satisfaction of every wish, even to a thousand, or two, or eight, or ten, is never enough, is it? And David says, one thing I've asked of the Lord, this will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty, translate glory of the Lord, and to meditate in his temple on that glory. It's all he needed. It's all he wanted. Psalm 84. What did the psalmist say? This is a rough paraphrase of those last verses. I'd rather be passing out bulletins outside the sanctuary to those who are coming into the temple to worship. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather be that close, not even in but that close to the beauty and glory of God, that to me would be better, surpassingly better. In fact, a day of that would be better than dwelling the entirety of my life in the tents of the wicked. And remember that tents are a currency. If you have lots of tents, you got lots of animals because you got lots of servants who live in those tents who take care of those animals. And what the psalmist is saying is, I'd rather pass out bulletins and be a poor man than dwell in the midst of unfathomable and surpassing wealth. Why? Same reason Peter said, it's good for us to be here. The only thing that will ever begin to scratch the itch in your soul is the vision of the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Peter understands at some level. And that's why it seems to me as you read his second letter and as you read Peter thinking about his own exodus, his own departure, he talks about glory because he's headed home. He's headed home to nestle down in the beauty, the loveliness, the glory of the one who has loved him with an everlasting love. What is it that Peter missed? We'll talk about this next week. What is it that Peter missed? He missed the not yet. He missed the not yet. Peter Your heart is right. Your desire is most appropriate. 
But if you read this passage in its context on both sides of this passage describing the transfiguration, Jesus speaks of the cross. And in the passage just preceding the description of the transfiguration, Jesus speaks of your cross. He who seeks to find his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. If you're going to follow me, here's what it entails. Self-sacrificing. Taking up your cross. Folks, we use this language, oh, she has such a cross to bear being married to that guy. Oh, he has such a cross to bear being married to that woman. Oh, they have such a cross to bear with that idiotic child of theirs. Oh, that child has such a cross to bear with those idiotic parents of his or hers. The cross is not about the burdens that you bear. The cross is about the burden that you are. And the Christian life is putting to death, putting to death self, following Jesus to the cross, impaling yourself upon the cross, living a life of self-dying, self-denying love and service and giving yourself to others most especially those who are closest to you. That's the thing that Peter didn't understand. He didn't get, but he's going to get it. That before the crown, as we put it, there is the cross. And Peter has to go down that mountain with Jesus. And as if to put an exclamation point on what Jesus has said prior to the transformation. If you read Luke chapter 9, the rest of the chapter, they go down that mountain right into the midst of the chaos of evil. They encounter a demon-possessed little boy. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, your heart is right, it's a good thing, but this is what you're not getting. There's a cross that comes first, and there's work yet to be done. And that work will be costly. And so, what is it that Peter has to learn? What is it that Peter must continue to learn? That you and I must continue to learn? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Folks, there's one voice that can be trusted. We say this. There is one voice that can be trusted. That is the voice of Jesus, God incarnate, who has evidenced himself, demonstrated himself to be a God of infinite compassion, mercy, kindness, love, righteousness, justice, peace, goodness. And it is that voice to which we must listen. That voice and that voice only. 
And we must let that one voice regularly speak into our lives as he speaks to us in and through his word by the agency of his spirit as he leads and guides and teaches and directs and challenges and confronts and comforts, ultimately leading us to the place we really want to be, which is home in the presence of his glory. Peter got it right. Peter missed that on the mountain was not the time He had to come down from the mountain into the midst of self-sacrificing love for others, always listening to the one voice, the voice of his Savior, Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for what is out there in front of us. But we come down from this mountain now And we move out into the world where all of the principalities and powers and agents of darkness are arrayed against you and us and your good purposes. Those principalities and powers that find homes in worldly institutions that would seek to crush us and crush you, just as did Herod. But Lord Jesus, you are the God of glory. And all these are but dust on the scales in view of your surpassing magnificence and beauty. Somehow, would you cause us more and more to be more enraptured with your loveliness and beauty so that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in light of your glory and grace. Lord Jesus, we need this and we pray for it. And we ask for it in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me?